everybody. I'm Jason. I'm one of the elders here, and you get the privilege of suffering through another one of my announcement things. So here's what's going on at Hope Church this week. Um, definitely, uh, whenever we do our worship services and everything, we have a time of prayer beforehand. You guys are invited to that if you're here. We have a uh, prayer time at 945. Please come down, avail yourself of that. Come join us, right? It's prayer time open for everybody. Really kind of helps center the mind, focus you, get you ready to worship God. Um, we are also in the middle of our, in the midst, I should say, of our Hope Church Along Obedience in the Same Direction series. I'm not going to say that acronym thing because it just doesn't sound right and it confuses my mind, which is easy to do, right? Um, but we're in the middle of that, and uh, each week we're going to be uh, exploring uh, sermon topics in the book references on uh, the, the uh sermon, and then we've got a couple of studies that are going along with it to help that out. On uh, Mondays at 6.30, we have our women's group that's meeting and talking about this very topic. Um, we do have a hybrid Bible study on Tuesdays at 7 p.m., either at the Kaler's home or via uh, Zoom. However, uh, we are not meeting this Tuesday, September 26th, because the Kaler's are not going to be available. So you being in their home without them there might be a little awkward for them. Um, that was a joke where you guys laugh a little bit. It's okay. It's okay. Uh, we'll get through this together, folks, I promise. Uh, then we have the Men's Fellowship, of course, Wednesdays at 7 p.m., meeting here at Hope Church. Now, uh, Discover Hope is actually going on uh, as of last week it started. So if you are new here, if you'd like to know more about Hope Church, about the, the theology and the philosophy, who we are, things like that, please avail yourself of that classroom, or of that class time, rather. Um, it meets directly after church. Um, it is a three-part series, again, started last week. Uh, this week will actually be a really good time uh, for you to come in and connect with us and hear more about us and more about our stories and, and just what it is that makes Hope Church Hope Church. So definitely come check that out. Uh, we also have a uh, Save the Date event coming up on October 21st. Hope Church is going to be helping First Baptist Lockhart. Uh, pastor Fritz is the pastor there. He's an incredible person. He's got some things that need to be done around his, uh, his church there. So he's invited us to come and help him out. So we're going to make the trek up there. We're going to help them with some projects around the place. We're all going to worship together. And we're probably going to enjoy some incredible, incredible barbecue. So definitely mark that on your calendars, October 21st, uh, which is about, what, a month away, give or, so, give or take. Um, and you definitely want to be there for that. It is an incredible, incredible experience to worship with our brothers and sisters over in Lockhart. Now, our last announcement, uh, the Hope Church Murder Mystery Dinner. This is going to be going on October 27th. There should have been an email that went out last week if you did not get it. Um, I believe there's probably information on the website as well. But make sure that you sign up for this murder mystery dinner. There's opportunities to serve in several different capacities, whether it be food or one of the characters. Um, I'm a character myself, probably not a good one, so I probably shouldn't sign up. But, you know, um, this is open for everybody to just plug in, get involved, come have fun. The, the Kalers are, are kind of leading the charge with this thing. But let's, let's make sure that we fill all those vacancies, even just guests, right? Tell your friends, neighbors, invite everybody out. Make sure that you sign up, though, so we have a head count for how many people are going to be here. And let's make this an incredible, incredible experience. Um, I think that pretty much covers everything. So it's yours now. Thank you, Jason. Good morning. I'm Pastor Tom. It's good to have you with us as we worship God together here today. 
several things that Jason's already talked about. So I think I will move on to, I just want to talk to the important people around here, just the important people. If you are in fifth grade or younger, we invite you to come forward for our children's chat at this time. Come on up. Come on up. You can come right up here. Yeah, come on up. Have a seat. Good morning. How are y'all doing? Brittany, what grade are you in? All right. You got a promotion this morning. All right. So, how are things? Good? Pretty good? Okay. So, we have been talking about for the past few Sundays how God wants our faith to be strong. How strong does God want your faith to be? Hmm. You think he wants it to be as strong as a wet paper sack? Yeah, at least that strong. What if you put a rock in a wet paper bag, what would happen? You think it might fall out the bottom? Yeah, is that how strong God wants your faith to be? No, how strong does he want your faith to be? Stronger, all right. Stronger like... Hmm. Let's see. What is what is why does God give us faith? What does faith allow us to do? Our faith allows us to have a connection to God. Right? And how does God feel about you? Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so, right? Does God love you? Yes, he does. He's crazy about you. You are one of his favorite people. There's, he has several billion of those, but that's not important right now. But God loves you, and he wants to be connected to you through faith. That's why he gives you the gift of faith, so that you can have a relationship with him. And let me read you a verse. You ready? All right. The Lord will keep you from all evil, that's all the bad things, and he will keep your life. Like all of you, you are in God's hands. Does that feel pretty good? Can anybody beat up God and take you away from him? No. No, he's the strongest force in the universe. That's his love. He loves you, and no one can take that away from you. He wants your faith to be strong. How strong? Here, let's see. I have these mints that are kind of strong. They say they're curiously strong. God wants our faith. These are green. Do you like green? All right, take one. All right. Who else wants one? Izzy, catch. All right. Did you taste it? Taste it. Let's taste it. What do you think? You like it? All right. These are spearmint. Spearmint. God says that if... Oh, here. You can just spit it in there. 
You want to take you want to take it out? You don't like that? Oh, I'm sorry. You got a little bit right there. You got it. All right, you found it. You didn't like that? Sorry. So, maybe I'm giving the wrong message here. God wants your faith to be strong because he loves you, and he wants your faith to be strong so that you can be better connected to him, so that you can know whatever happens in your life, God loves you, you're in God's hands, you are his child, and he will be with you no matter what. I'm sorry I gave you that strong mint. Curiously strong, like God wants your faith to be curiously strong. Can we pray? Okay. Dear God, thank you for your love and for your protection, that you watch over us, that you are with us in all things, and that no one can take your love away from us. Thank you that you are the God who provides, that you are the God who gives us the gift of faith and who helps our faith to grow curiously strong. We pray your blessing over these children as they spend more, of your, more time in your word and hope for kids this morning. Fill them with your Holy Spirit. Lead them into a deeper understanding of how much you love them. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. You can throw, there's a trash can on your way out. You can just throw those in there. Sorry. I think my mic was already on. Even better. All right. Would anyone like a curiously strong mint? You can just uh, pass those around. Take one, pass it. Maybe like knock it out in your hand so we don't get everybody's fingers in there. In this post-COVID world, we got to worry about things like that. Um, all right. What's that? Do we though? I don't know. Um, all right. Why don't we? And feel free to pass those around. And uh, if you want a COVID mint, it's all yours. Have one. Okay. <laughs> um, why don't we pray and prepare our hearts for God's word as we uh, open our Bibles this morning? God, our loving Father, we pause before you today. As we open your word, we pray that you, at the same time, would open our hearts that you would speak to us this morning through the presence and power of your Holy Spirit, through your Holy Word, that this convergence of your instruments are uh, realized in our hearts this morning, that we will grow closer to you and better capable of living out your Word in this world. And so, Lord, we give you our sins and we thank you for the forgiveness and grace that are ours in Jesus Christ. We give to you those relationships in our lives that are strained. And we pray for your peace and reconciliation where they are needed. We lift to you those whom we know and love who are sick or recovering from medical procedures or facing uncertain diagnoses. And we pray your healing mercies over your people. We give you a 
prayer of praise and thanksgiving for bringing Colonel Sean Lester home from the hospital today for his uh, progress and healing from abdominal surgery. And we pray your continued hand upon him and his recovery and healing. Uh, bring him back to full health and function soon. We lift up our sister Lori Branson to you as she uh, suffers some complications with uh, a knee replacement. And we just pray for your healing and provision over her um, as she struggles with pain. We pray you would keep those levels down and help the doctors understand uh, the best steps forward. And we just pray again your healing over that part of her body. And Lord, we come before you on behalf of our country, uh, our leaders at every level of government, elected and appointed. We pray that you would give them wisdom and discernment in the decisions that are before them. We lift up all who wear uh, uniforms in this country to protect and defend our freedoms, and we pray your blessing over them and their families. We pray especially for those who are in harm's way. We ask that you would bring them home safely. We lift to you uh, those who've returned home changed as a result of their service, and we pray your healing over them, mind, body, and soul. And Lord, we pray that you would use us, your church, to extend that grace to them and to others through uh, our collective ministry. We pray for Hope Church. We pray for all the churches to whom we are connected uh, through our denomination, through our missions giving, and we just pray your blessing upon all those works in this world where your word goes forth from the mouths of your people. May it not return to you empty. And Lord, we lift to you the missionaries that we support in Guatemala, in Laredo, Texas, in Cuba, in Beirut, Lebanon, and elsewhere in the Middle East. And we lift to you the churches that are being started um, in Texas through our denomination, uh, in New Braunfels, in Austin, in Dallas, and, and hopefully elsewhere soon. And we just pray your blessing over all those young works. Um, we lift all these things to you and pray that you would be with us now. In Jesus' holy and precious name, amen. All right, so we are in a series of messages right now. Uh, we're using, it, it, the series is through uh, 15 of the Psalms in the collection of Psalms in the Old Testament. Um, there are 150 Psalms, and we are looking at a series of 15 of them, starting in Psalm 120, going through Psalm 134. And if you are in this section of your Bible, you will notice that before each of these Psalms begins are the words, a song of ascent. Um, if, you're, if you're like truly old school, and you pull out your, King's James, your King James, it might say a song of incline. Um, I'm not even sure what it says in the King James. Somebody look that up for me. Can we fact check that? Um, uh, Psalm 120 through 134, before each one of those, there should be a little tagline. Uh, yeah, like before verse 1 in each one of those songs, there should be a song of ascent or something like that. Psalm of degrees. Okay. Psalm of Degrees, your, your King James would say. Um, and these are the psalms, the songs. This is a, a, a little hymnal that God's people would have accessed when they were walking up 
toward the temple in Jerusalem. There were um, a variety of reasons why someone might be making this pilgrimage, uh, but there were at least three festivals a year where God's people were expected to be represented in Jerusalem by someone, and that someone would then have to travel to Jerusalem and ascend into the city and up to the Temple Mount, which, if I'm not mistaken, was the highest point in the city. And so these are the songs that God's people would have uh, been singing as they walked up toward the temple for worship. Uh, what we saw last week in Psalm 120 was <laughs> the, the, the collection of these 15 st- psalms starts fairly darkly. Uh, that psalm is one of just four psalms out of 150 that does not end on an upbeat idea. Um, it ends with kind of a sorrowful idea, and that psalm is the first one. So when God's people would have finished song one, if they didn't repeat it because of where they were in their progression, they would have gone on to Psalm 121, which is the one we're going to look at this morning. And if you're one of those all peppy and positive people, you came on the right Sunday. This psalm is 100% upbeat, uh, looking up, looking forward. Uh, This one's for you. Um, I'm a little darker than that in my outlook on life, so I liked Psalm 120. That was like right up my alley. But, uh, you know, they're all good, and they all have their place. And we're going to just look, uh, before we read Psalm 121, I'm going to give you a few hints on engaging uh, poetry in general and Hebrew poetry in particular. Um, You'll see... As, as this author unrolls what he's calling God's people to sing in this passage, um, he uses several metaphors about the human body and physical creation. So he talks about eyes, our human eyes, the foot, the hand, and the soul. Then he talks about hills, heaven, earth, sun, and moon. And you see these references, and he, what, he's, what he's doing is he's trying to, to get you to into this idea that it's all of you and it's all of creation that are all of one accord that our Creator loves you, He's watching over you, and the word that keeps getting repeated is the Hebrew word that we translate keep or keeper, that God is your keeper. He takes care of you. He provides for you spiritually. And we'll see how the the psalmist sort of flips everything into the spiritual realm towards the end of the psalm. But if you would, read with me. This is poetry, so look for the imagery and try to think about what what it points to, what it means, what it's saying to you. And then we'll talk about the psalm together in a moment. Psalm 121, a song of ascents. I lift up my eyes to the hills. From where does my help come? My help comes from the Lord, who made heaven and earth. He will not let your foot be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel 
will neither slumber nor sleep. The Lord is your keeper. The Lord is your shade on your right hand. The sun shall not strike you by day nor the moon by night. The Lord will keep you from all evil. He will keep your life. The Lord will keep your going out and your coming in from this time forth and forevermore. I'm going to read the same poem, the same psalm, from the work of a pastor named Eugene Peterson, who wrote the book that we're using as our guide through these psalms. Um, He also wrote a uh, paraphrase of the Bible that we call the message, or that he called the message. And what a, the difference between a translation and a paraphrase is very simple. The translation is trying to, to literally translate what was in, in this case, ancient Hebrew. And it's trying to make it, put it into readable English, but it's trying to give you some sense of what the, liter, the, the original author was literally saying. Um, the problem in poetry is that sometimes translation, direct translation, uh, doesn't do a good job of evoking the emotion and the metaphor that the poet is going for. And so we're going to look at the same passage, and I'll, I'll confess this one, uh, the paraphrase is not altogether different from the translation. But nonetheless, hopefully, this little shift will help each of us access this passage a little bit better. Um, but I'm going to read Psalm 121 from Eugene Peterson's work, The Message. I look up to the mountains. Does my strength come from mountains? No. My strength comes from God, who made heaven and earth and mountains. He won't let you stumble. Your guardian God won't fall asleep. Not on your life. Israel's guardian will never doze or sleep. God's your guardian right at your side to protect you. Shielding you from sunstroke, sheltering you from moonstroke. God guards you from every evil. He guards your very life. He guards you when you leave and when you return. He guards you now. He guards you always. All right. So let's, let's sort of begin where the psalmist begins in verse 1, and we find this, this author looking around. He's looking around and contemplating what he sees. And I don't know about you, I love being out in nature. And we don't get this privilege very often around here, but whenever I'm near or in or among mountains, I'm always struck by the majesty, the, the, the scale, the grandeur, the strength that is conveyed from those aspects of God's creation. Mountains are inspiring to stand and realize how very, very small we really are in this world, in this universe, in the span of time, um, we are just a little blip, really. And there's something about the humility of standing in, a, in the midst of mountains 
that is good for the soul. It's good to remember that they're there, they've been there, they'll continue to be there long after we are gone. And there's something in that exchange that puts us in the right posture for understanding God's love, his purpose for our lives, uh, the perspective of realizing that we are just a small part of an enormous divine plan. At least that's what I can feel in the mountains, unless there's like a bear around or something. Then I feel very different things. Um, But here, this psalmist is looking at, at the mountains ahead of him, probably the mountains of Jerusalem. They're really, we would call them hills, especially if you've ever lived in Colorado. Anything in Israel is only a hill. Um, But in their context, they wouldn't have gotten out much. And so these were their mountains. And they still evoke this idea of grandeur and scale. And the author's looking around and it's like, "These these give me a sense of strength But truly, my strength doesn't come from what I'm seeing. It comes from somewhere else. It comes from that source from which those mountains were created. And that's kind of the first thought that we're left with as this author calls us to consider our options. The options for where things come from, where strength comes from, where meaning comes from. And so, as we consider those options, we we look around us, Um, all of us have needs, all of us need a little help in life, maybe a lot, but life is about figuring out that those connections that God wants us to have in order to thrive. And so, this author looks around, surveys the land, he sees the grandeur, the strength that's conveyed by the the hills before him. And he calls us to look around, to look for help, to look around our circumstances and ask the question, where does true strength come from? I think we, we looked last week, the author talked about living in the midst of lies. And one of the cultural lies that we live with, as Americans at least, um, is that our strength somehow comes from in here. That American spirit, that defiant will. And that's all good, but it's not where ultimate strength is derived from. And the author understands this, the author of this psalm understands exactly from where our help comes. We are to look around, consider the options, look for help, and then we are, going back to the the preface to the psalm, we're to look up. To remember, we are traveling up. We are going toward the place where God wants us to be. And so we keep walking up. We keep looking up because it's there in that upward place that we find the source of true strength. The psalmist tells us in verse 2, after we've looked around at all of our options on this earth, look up. 
Turn to the one who is always there. And the psalmist does something very intentional here. He uses, uh, okay, who wants a, a free, no extra charge, ridiculously unnecessary seminary word? You want one? What's wrong with you? <laughs> All right. So the author here uses what, for some reason, and I still haven't really figured this out. So the theologians, people who study the Bible, like to invent giant words that make no sense to anyone other than them, and then use those giant words to make other people feel small and insignificant in comparison, because that's what theology is all about, right? Um, and so the author of the psalm uses four Hebrew letters in conjunction with each other that are the four Hebrew letters that God gave to Moses at the burning bush. We would translate them as I am, which I realize is only three letters in English, but don't worry about that right now. Um, and God says to Moses, when Moses says, well, if I'm going to go to Egypt and tell the king of Egypt, the most powerful nation on earth at that time, to let all of his slaves go, to just let them walk out, I need to, and if they're going to listen to me, if God's people are going to, I need to tell them who sent me. God says, oh, that's easy. I am. Y-H-W-H is how we transliterate those, and, and so the theologians call that four-letter conjoined word the tetragrammaton. Don't ask me why. It, but we would pronounce, the, it would have been pronounced probably Yahweh or Yahweh or something like that. Um, and uh, however, if you remember the Ten Commandments, one of them is, do not take the Lord's name in vain. So the people of the Old Testament would have just said, well, the best way to guard against taking the name of the Lord in vain is to never say it. And so every time they get to the four-letter conjoined consonants that, we, that some nerds call the tetragrammaton, they would say, the Lord, or Adonai in Hebrew, um, and they wouldn't pronounce God's name. I, I think we've missed out on something beautiful and powerful and true and right and good by never pronouncing Yehwich or whatever they would, however they might have said it. Um, but nonetheless, the author of this psalm goes there in his next giving voice to that place from which strength comes. He goes to the great I am, the one who always has been, who is now, who always shall be. And it doesn't matter what you call those four letters or how you pronounce them or how badly you might pronounce them. They're there to evoke a sense of awe. It's like, you think the mountains are majestic? What about the great I am? The being who always has been, who created those mountains, who spoke and the, the universe came into existence. That is where strength is derived from. That is where our hearts must be oriented if we are to derive the only strength that matters. We get it there. 
we go to him. We render ourselves unto the great I am. And so verse 2 is a very strong pointing of our hearts and souls toward the one who is always there. Yahweh, the great I am. Yahweh, the creator of it all. And so the way you tell when you're reading your Bible is whenever that word is used, the Yahweh word, the four letters, four Hebrew letters squished together, they're all consonants, by the way, um, is it will, your Bible will put the word Lord with a capital L and then small caps O-R-D. And that tells you that this is the place where the author is using that four-letter name of God. And so you can know when you're reading your Bible and you see Lord in small caps, like, oh, that's the great I am. That's the God of Moses, the God of Abraham, uh, not necessarily in that order, uh, the God of Jacob, etc. That's him. That's the one. That's the God who always has been, who is now, and forever shall be. That is our only option for true strength in this life and in the next. It is him. It is our creator, the redeemer, the keeper of our souls. So, we consider our options. We reduce... It's D-E-D, dead. No, it's, it's blanking. It's about to die. I need batteries. Like Bayou La Battery in Alabama. All right. We'll uh, keep going while we can. I got my best courier on the job. All right. All right, we're going to turn it off. Go. Is that better? You got it? Got it done figured out? Uh, in, in the defense of my, my servants of Jesus who work in the sound booth, they put new batteries in this thing before we started today. I watched them do it, uh, and one of them must have been a dud, so we're past that. We're going to get through this. Um, okay, the author is to, telling us to give consideration to who this is that we have access to through the Messiah. It is a God who shows himself here and everywhere as a God who is in control. 
the, the poetic metaphor, you got to love this. Um, he will not let your foot be moved. Verse 3, he who keeps you will not slumber. So in the ancient world, um, things worked like this. If you, if you had a group of people that were living together and they wanted to be safe, what did they build around them? A wall. Easy enough. Takes a little time. But if you can get it finished, um, you can defend yourself against bad people, right? And then if you want to see the bad people coming, you've got to have people out on that wall who are doing what? They're watching, right? So uh, <laughs> this is intended to be funny. I, I lived in Honduras for about a year total, and I worked at a, at a little school that was a private school run by the Episcopal Church, and they had put a wall around their campus because you've got to protect things in, in certain contexts, and that was how you do it in this little town in Honduras. And they had a guy, his name was Francisco, nicest guy you've ever met. Um, and he would come in, he would come onto campus at about 7, 8 o'clock at night, and he'd have a little lunch bag. And Francisco's job was to watch at night. He would sit inside, he was supposed to stay awake, um, and then he would make sure that nobody tried to do anything bad during the night when no one else was there. And, of course, if something did happen, the first person that went to jail was Francisco. I went to visit him. It was, you know, weird, but uh, he didn't do anything wrong. He just, that's the first thing they do. That's how justice works. Anyway, Francisco was, like I said, the nicest guy on planet Earth. Occasionally, I would be walking by the campus after dark. I would know he was there. I would stop by to say hi. And he had probably just eaten, and it's dark, it's late at night. Take a wild guess what Francisco was doing. He was dozing a little bit, you know. And he would doze off, and then technically, the campus was not really safe while he was sound asleep snoring uh, in the courtyard. The psalmist understands the way people work, that we have limits, that we have frailties, that we um, are not always the best watchmen because we fall asleep or we take our eye off the ball. And he says, your God, the God that's watching over you, that's keeping you, he doesn't sleep, he doesn't even nap, he doesn't even blink. He's always there. He loves you. He cares about you. He is present with you in all circumstances, and he's not going to mess up. We are to know that our God doesn't nap, sleep, blink, etc., which allows us to trust, and there's two things that, that the psalmist does here, in verses 3 and 4, he talks about your feet, your spiritual feet will not slip when bad things happen, 
God is with you. He's there to walk with you, to support you, to guide you through those situations in life. He won't let your foot be moved. He keeps you, and, verse 4, he keeps Israel. So that word uh, has a couple of meanings, actually. Um, If you want to look at the origin of the meaning of the name Israel, go back to Genesis chapter 32, and God engages or interacts with a, a slime bag named Jacob. And Jacob had been getting through life by sort of scheming his way through life. And he met his father-in-law, who's out-schemed the schemer at first, and then Jacob re-out-schemed his father-in-law. It's a great story. Read it in Genesis chapter 32. Jacob's coming home to Canaan, to his brother, and he stops at the edge of a river, and he says, Honey, it's dangerous over there. You go first. You and the kids, go ahead. Just go on in. It'll be fine. And he stays on the safe side of the river. I'm not making this up, like, right? He sends his wife and kids and his flocks across the river, and he stays behind, and God appears to him. And they have this weird wrestling match in the middle of the night. Jacob and God. And when it's over, God touches him right here and says, you're going to limp for the rest of your life, punk. Taking on me? You think you, you think you got what it takes? Come on. And But God says to him, from now on, your name will no longer be Slimeball. It will be he who wrestles with God. And, so you remember Sarah? Think about the letters in Sarah's name, S-R-H in Hebrew. Um, Israel, same letters in Sarah as in the word Israel. Sarah, the Hebrew meaning of her name, means princess or one who rules or one who will rule. So Sarah, rule, ruler, Sarael, rules with God. So the name Israel means two things at the same time. It means people who wrestle with God and people who rule with God, people who've been made princes and princesses by the hand of God. They've been given status, a place, a protection that comes only from being in the royal family. And so that's you. And this author reminds us that you can trust in God's personal love for you and you can trust in God's covenantal love for his people. We would now call that his church, that's us, the people redeemed by the blood of the Messiah. That is the group over which God promises to keep, to watch, to never fall asleep. We are to know our God doesn't nap and he has us covered. He is our keeper. We can trust him in all that we do and we can trust him at all times. I love the metaphors that he uses here in verses 5 and 6. The Lord is your keeper, verse 5. The Lord is your shade on your right hand. So 
if you were out in the field harvesting, you would tie this really weird-looking um, cover that stuck out so that when you reached out to, to strip the grain off of the head of whatever plant it was on, your, your hand wouldn't be in the sun, it would be in the shade. And you could do this all day without getting sunburned. And so everybody look, would have looked really weird. Uh, everybody out in the field would have this weird-looking extended cover, almost like those cones of shame you put on your dog when they're sick or whatever, you know what I'm talking about? But they put them on their hand, and they'd be able to reach out and participate in the harvest, but their hand wouldn't get burned. And this author says, God is like that. He's there to cover you, to protect you, to make sure that you don't get burned or that at least when you do, he's there to help in the healing and recovery. He is your keeper. He is the shade on your right hand. The sun will not strike you by day nor the moon by night. Now, a couple things here. Um, I don't know about you, but I've never been struck by the moon. I've never had moon burn. There are cultures that believe that moonlight is dangerous. Okay, go for it. That may have been in play here, that there may have been some cultural beliefs that moonlight was bad for you, so go to bed. You know, go to bed, son. The moonlight's bad for you. You're going to catch moon cold or something. I don't know. Um, But I think all the author is saying is that God is with you and everything underneath the daylight and everything that falls underneath the nightlight. Everything. He's with you in everything, in your coming, in your going, in your daytime life, when you're asleep at night. Your God is your keeper. Always. He never stops. He never blinks. He's there for you. So we trust. We trust him in all we do. We trust him at all times. And now that we've considered our options, narrow them down to one source of strength, we've considered that person with whom we are dealing, that he doesn't nap, he has us covered. We consider, verses 7 and 8, the implications of this for ourselves. God is our spiritual keeper. Look what happens in verse 7. The Lord will keep you from all evil. So evil in Hebrew would be the same word that we would use for calamity. And what the author is saying is that this, what we're talking about here, is spiritual. It is your spiritual condition. The reason we know that, end of verse 7, last word in verse 7 is translated as the word life. This is the Hebrew word soul. We would, I'm not sure why no one is translating the word soul in these psalms. It's fascinating to me because it's a great word. And it means all of you, but most importantly, the spiritual you. So the author, let me try to boil this down. It is easy, especially when you're reading Hebrew poetry, to think that God is primarily concerned with your physical well-being. That Those images are often used in Hebrew poetry to to denote blessing. 
that you are prosperous, that you are healthy, that you are wise, etc. This author is making it very, very clear that the blessing that he's talking about is spiritual. Why, why is that important? Because your physical body may break down at some point. The physical world around you may break. The, so your health, your mind, your job, your situation, your physical reality, that's not what we're talking about here. We're talking about a God who is with you spiritually no matter what happens in your physical reality. So whatever that is that's happening in the real world, this author wants you to know, wants us to know, God is with you. He's keeping your spiritual self intact so that you can survive whatever happens physically. And so let's just move through these last couple of verses if we can. We are to invite God into the spiritual aspect of our life. The word is translated in verse 7 as life. It's the word soul. The author is very clearly saying the, the all of you, including and not limited to, but especially your spiritual self, that's what I'm after. That's what God wants to engage with. And we are to invite him into that, that soul that's within us, into the battle between good and evil. God does not promise that he's going to extract us from the battle between good and evil. In fact, the truth is the battleground for the battle between God and the evil one is our souls. That's where the battle rages. That's, those are the hills that are, that are worth dying on, God says. And he looks at the heart, the soul that lives within you, and he literally says, I will die on that hill. I will go to the cross and give up my life to redeem that soul, your soul. That's how much he loves you. That's what he wants you to, that's the strength from which he wants you to live, that your Messiah, your God, is the lover of your soul. And he will stop at nothing, even death itself, to gain that ground, to redeem you and bring you into the royal family of God himself, where you are kept, protected, loved, and safe spiritually forever. So, we invite God into this spiritual aspect of ourselves, our souls, into the battle between good and evil, into the battleground of our soul itself. This Hebrew word is like the word for life force, the stuff within you that makes you fully and truly you. This is what God is redeeming for himself. We invite him in to our spiritual selves, and we invite him into every aspect of our lives. The everywhere we go and the everything we do. 
the now and the forever. So that if life breaks completely down here, in whatever way you want to define that, there's still one thing that no one can take away from you. That is your soul. It has been redeemed. It has been purchased at the price of the blood of God's own son. It has been renewed. It has been filled and indwelled with the presence of the spirit of God himself. You are a child of God. And though you wrestle with him, you also are called into that place of prince or princess where you abide in, under his protection and safety forever. You are precious in his eyes, and every part of your life is important to him, and he promises to be with you every step of the way. I want to take you back to one uh, little place in the book of Deuteronomy, and I think you'll notice some similarities between the mentions of hands and feet and eyes and all of, all of what you're about to hear. This isn't so much poetry. This is prayer. This is a prayer that Moses wrote or that God wrote through Moses would probably be a better way to say it. But I want you to think about this before I read this. Every single day of Jesus' life, of every Jewish person's life in virtually every century prior to this one, this prayer would have been heard in some capacity. It was one of those prayers that you could just say the first line and everyone around you could finish it. This is the stuff that is being discussed in this psalm, and it uses that word for soul, for that spiritual self, from Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 through 9, and then I'll close with prayer. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down. And when you rise, you shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. I don't know about you, but that sounds awfully similar or powerfully similar to what the psalmist was trying to get at in Psalm 121. Everything you touch, everywhere your feet take you, when you go out your gate and when you come back in your house, God is with you. He loves you. He has redeemed you. You are his. Will you pray with me? God, our Father, we marvel at your love that you would even care to go to the lengths that you did for the sake of souls such as ours. We acknowledge that we do not deserve your grace, and at the same time, we rejoice and marvel 
that you have shown your grace to us, that you have redeemed the very core of who we are, and that you have deposited there the Holy Spirit, that we might have you with us, keeping us in all phases of life. Lord, may we put you where you belong as the single source of strength, the one to whom we are to look, the one who has redeemed. May we be ever grateful and ever stronger as a result of knowing your love that you have shown to us through the death of your son, Jesus Christ, on the cross. It is in his name we pray. Amen.